For this morning, will you please turn in your Bibles to the wonderful book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. And as we focus on really verses 10 through 13, I would like to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 3 through the 14th verse and then to turn you to another passage as well. Will you pray with me before we read Scripture? Our Father and our God, with humble humility, with reverence, with awe, with a desire to please you, with a desire that your word go forth with power into our hearts, we pray that those who have come this morning with burdens that seem so deep and great, with concerns and consternation of mind and heart, and those who have come with many blessings that have brought about in their lives even happy experiences, that we would all come before you in the knowledge that you were present with us, your people, in that special way that you have promised to be when we worship your name. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who has given to us this word by divine inspiration will now illumine its page to our minds and that you will change our hearts, affections, and wills and especially help us once again to see Christ crucified as the only redeemer of sinners like us. And that each of us may leave saying, he's my savior, he's my redeemer, he died for me, and I am saved for time and eternity. And we would pray that no one here would be lost. And we ask this in the name of Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our savior from sin, from hell, and that for an eternity to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 3, let's begin with verse 1. This is the word of God. O oh, foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree." So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now keep your finger there, turn over to chapter 6 and note with me verse 16, 14, actually 14 through 16. 
The Apostle Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Will you this morning contemplate with me the wonder of the cross? Will you lose yourselves in worship and adoration as you contemplate what Jesus has done for us when he shed his precious blood and redeemed us from our hell-deserving sins? In Galatians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul reminded the Galatians that Christ has been placarded before their very eyes as crucified. That's what happens when the good news of Jesus is preached. Christ is placed before the the eyes of faith so that sinners might receive him and trust him alone for salvation. And as he is placarded before our eyes as crucified, it is a foolish thing indeed for us to set aside that one who alone can redeem us from our sins. And so he says, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And in this passage in verses 10 and following, he would say to the Galatians again, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Paul enters into the very essence and marrow of the cross, the very depths of what it means for us that Christ died for sinners. And so will you enter with me into the logic of Paul's thinking as we think together about the cross? And as we do so from this passage, the first thing that we would note, the very first point, is the tragic defection of the Galatians, or if you prefer, apostasy. The tragic defection of the Galatians. Paul preached the gospel at the first to these people. He was the one who founded the churches there in Galatia. But false teachers arose. Jews who were zealous for the law, who wanted Gentile Christians to accept circumcision as something necessary for a relationship with God. And they argued that obedience to the law of Moses was an essential part of acceptance with God. And so Paul declares that they preach a false gospel. In chapter 1 he puts it this way, beginning in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so I say... And now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And it was very subtle. Uh, Evidently with these false teachers there was no overt denial of justification by grace through faith. They came along and said, yes, of course Jesus saves, but in addition to what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, we must add the works of Moses in order that we might be accepted by God. And so it was very subtle. It was a substituting of a false gospel for the true gospel, but it became very overt. So that when all of this issue came to a head in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, We read in the first verse of Acts 15, some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so it became very overt in their thinking. 
In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 Paul says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And they were tempted to go back to those old dark ways of works righteousness. Now Martin Luther in the period of the Protestant Reformation made this comment. There is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and substitute for it the doctrines of works and human traditions. And so he argues that the doctrine of justification by Christ's cross cannot be taught enough. And I think Martin Luther was certainly right. It is the standing or falling doctrine of the church, Luther said. But do you also not see that it is the standing or falling doctrine of your soul? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. And so the Galatians' defection was foolish indeed. And Paul wants them to understand the flow of redemptive history And he wants to remind them that even Father Abraham, who was looked upon by the Jews as a proto-lawkeeper, that even Father Abraham was justified by grace through faith in Christ. And so in verse 6 he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him or imputed to him as righteousness. As Abraham by faith believed the promise, he was trusting in the Christ who was to come, and he was accepted by God. You are forgetting the father Abraham, that he was saved by this very gospel that I preached to you, Paul is saying. But no, he believed God, and it was credited to him, imputed to him. By believing the promise, he believed in Jesus and was accepted on the basis of the merit of Christ. Abraham received righteousness, that is to say he was accepted with God by faith and not by works. By faith and not by works. Faith is just an empty vessel in order to receive the grace of God and is itself a grace that is given to us by God. It adds nothing to our acceptance with God on the basis of Christ alone in his work we are justified in the presence of God. And so can't you see how tragic this defection is in the Galatian churches? A terrible thing that we should should take note of because they had quickly deserted the one who had called them. So mark it down. There has only been one way of acceptance with God and there will only be one way of acceptance with God in this fallen world and that is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Old Testament saint looking toward the cross, the New Testament believer looking back to the cross. And so what does Paul do? Well, he reminds them of the plight of sinners apart from the gospel and he preaches the cross to the Galatians yet once again. And nothing is so basic, indispensable, as the cross by which God's wrath is removed, redemption is won, and reconciliation accomplished. The cross plus nothing. The cross, Christ, plus nothing for your acceptance with God. So the second thing that we see is Paul moving along, and he wants them to understand again their need of the gospel, and so we see the sinner's plight the sinner's plight. That's the second thing. And will you see it with me in verses 10 and 11? For all who rely, this is Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So what does he say about the plight of the sinner? Well, first, those who rely on the law for acceptance with God are condemned and under its power. He calls it a curse in verse 10. All who rely on works of law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now what's Paul's logic here? I think it's very important that we see it. Paul's logic in this passage is simply this. There are people who are committed to keeping the law. All things written in it. But despite their commitment, they do not keep all things written in the law. And the unstated implicit premise is this. They do not keep all things written in the law because they cannot keep all things written in the law. And in chapter 5, verse 3, he makes this explicit when he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And so the law of God comes in all of its perfection, with all of its thou shalts and all of its thou shalt nots, And the law says, if you're going to be accepted, you must obey me to the T. You must obey me with absolute perfection. And there's no wiggle room. There's no way out. The only way, says the law, that you can be accepted by God is by perfect personal obedience to every jot and tittle of the good works that I demand. And so Paul points to Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show that anyone who doesn't perfectly perform the law is condemned by the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So that's the first part of showing the plight. Do you understand? Those of you who may be tempted to say, there's something that I can do to contribute to my acceptance with God if you do not obey the entire law from the heart with sinless perfection, you cannot be saved by the law, but the law condemns, and that's every one of us. None of us can keep the law. And then secondly, law and gospel, Paul says, are incompatible ways of relating to God for acceptance. Notice how he contrasts these in verses 11 and 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And in verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So by faith is contrasted with the law and its curse. By free grace through faith is unconditional. There are no conditions. Christ met every condition. But the law is conditional through and through. Faith says done. The law says do. Faith says Jesus paid it all. The law comes and says, you pay it all. Every bit of it. And so, Paul says, don't you understand what this means? That we sinful human beings are under a curse. It's not a matter of Christ plus something, adding circumcision or ceremonial law or whatever the work may be. But we are under a curse. And these are very heavy words in verse 10, are they not? For all 
who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. As our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, we have lost communion with God or under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And notice that Paul says, it is written. This is God's own word. Now, I want to to pause here for a moment and ask, do you see this? And I'm not simply asking the question, do you have an intellectual apprehension of what I'm saying? I'm asking, in the depths of your heart, do you see, do you know, do you experience, do you feel the weight of this curse apart from Christ and his gospel? In the 19th century, a man named uh, Haldane went to Geneva, where the theological students were being taught contrary to the Word of God, and he invited them to his room, and he laid out Bibles, and he began to teach through the book of Romans. And when he came to chapter 3, in which there is this litany, this vivid description of the fallenness of man... There is no one that can keep God's law. There is no one who can work his way into heaven. There is no one who can be accepted by what he does. This awful litany in Romans 3. One of the students said to him, Now I see that doctrine in the Bible. But Haldane responded, Yes, but do you see it in your heart? And that's what I'm asking. Do you see in your heart that there really is not one thing that you can do in order to be accepted by God or to add to what Christ has done in order that you might be accepted by God. If we begin to understand the spirituality of the law, he who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has broken the law. And indeed, having broken one law, we have broken all of the law of God, which demands that nothing and no one be put in God's place. If we understand the spirituality of the law, then you will cry out, I am undone. Charles Bridges put it this way, ignorance of the law is the root of self-deception. An acquaintance with its spirituality unveils the hidden world of guilt and defilement, brings down self-complacency, and lays the sinner prostrate before the cross. Now that's true. When God the Holy Spirit takes the law and works within our hearts to show us our deep need in light of its inflexibility, then when that happens, we see that it's a law that works death and curse. And the whole biblical doctrine of the death of Christ is built on the fact of the moral law and that it is necessary, judicially necessary, if we are to be saved, that the penalty be paid and there is no way around it and there is no other alternative. There is a divinely given objective moral law and we have broken that moral law and oh how that needs to be preached in church and society today. Our culture lives as if there were no objective moral law. And so it sees no need of atonement, of the cross, of salvation. Hugh Martin, one of our great Scotch worthies, says, If there is no thou shalt, what becomes of the thou? 
And so if you suppress the law, you suppress the lawgiver. But when the Spirit of God awakens a person in view of the inflexibility of this law, that man, woman, or child will cry out in one fashion or another, what have I done? I have broken the law of God. I'm deserving of his infinite displeasure. I'm without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Woe is me, to use the words of Isaiah, who saw God in his holiness. And that leads us thirdly to the achievement of the cross. The achievement of the cross. It's found here principally in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The cross removes wrath. And the Apostle Paul makes a reference to Deuteronomy 21-23 about the exposure of a criminal's corpse. When a crime deserved death, a criminal was hung and open as one who was cursed by God. And that's why the passage was read by Pastor McDonald this morning from Numbers 25. The wrath of God is averted during the apostasy of Baal Peor when the chiefs are hanged in the sun before the Lord. Well, in an infinitely greater way, this is what Christ has done for us. He took my penalty. He took my plight. He took my curse. He had no sin. This he did for me. This he did for you, believer. Was it for crimes that he had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree? The answer is no. He had no sin. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Yes, yes. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. So this is vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement, the most glorious truth that can ever be proclaimed from any pulpit and heard by any ear. Jesus paid it all. And verse 13 is so shocking. So shocking. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, that some commentators try to maneuver around it. But Paul means precisely what he says. The curse bore down on the Son of God in my place. He suffered due to the sins of his people. His suffering satisfied the law. The sufferings of the Son are the honorable way, the only way consistent with God's own character that he can remain just and justify the sinner, that he can remain just and accept us in the righteousness of Christ. The only way that he can pardon sins is through Jesus' shed blood. There is no other way. And by this we are redeemed. That's the word that's used. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yes, emancipation is indicated, but the context demands that redemption here means the satisfaction of God's justice, the removal of his wrath, and oh, what a plan it is. I will tell you something. The longer I am a believer in the Lord Jesus, the older I get, the more I walk in Christ, the more I lose myself in wonder on this point. I just cannot contemplate the cross enough. Can you? I cannot contemplate the love of the cross enough. Can you? I cannot, I cannot fathom the depths of the cross and of God's wonderful plan enough. Can you? And so Cooper, who wrote, of course, 
There is a fountain filled with blood and others that we sing. Cooper says, Oh, how unlike the complex works of man, heaven's easy, artless, unencumbered plan, no meretricious gracious to, graces to beguile, no clustering ornaments to clog the pile. And that's what some of you are attempting to do. Meretricious graces, your own works, you're just clogging the, clogging the pile. And all of that needs to be gone so that you can see only Jesus can save the sinner. Only Jesus can save me. And it's a good and wise saying of Robert Trail that man's merit makes hell and Christ's merit makes heaven. Well, if that's the case, I want Christ's merit, not mine. What about you? So the cross, Christ met my radical need by an even more radical remedy because when Jesus went to the cross... The Father saw him as sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us he became sin for us on the cross. And God the Father said, you be David B. McWilliams and I'm going to pour out upon you all of the wrath that he deserves for his sins eternally. That's what happened on the cross. Do you believe in Jesus for your salvation? That you put your name there. He substituted himself for you. He died for you. He paid the penalty for you that you might know God, be restored to fellowship, and be saved for time and eternity. He bore your curse so that you might never bear the curse. Now, homiletically, I'm not supposed to do this. Homiletical teachers would say, never do this. But I'm going to. You're not supposed to to preach two texts in one sermon. Well, I'm not, really. What I want to do is to say, where does Paul go with all of this? Where does he go with this? What What does he want in the Christian's life because of all of this? And as he continues to work out the theme of the cross, it leads us to the fourth thing that we want to see. All boasting is excluded, but boasting in the cross. Because of Jesus bearing the curse... He says in verse 14 of chapter 6, Be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now this is where Paul takes his doctrine of the cross. What are the presuppositions? The presuppositions are God is holy and must punish sin. If God must punish sin, and if sin deserves infinite punishment because sin is an offense against an infinitely majestic God, then there is only one who could save, and that is God himself assuming human nature, and that is Jesus Christ in his incarnation. And in his atonement, Christ offered himself an infinitely valuable payment for the infinite debt that we owe to God, and I think this to be the most wonderful of truths Jonathan Edwards used to meditate upon the wrath of God and the cross of Christ, and he would say, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. I cannot imagine what it means that for eternity I would pay for my sins eternally, and that Christ in those brief hours on the cross bore the wrath of God and paid the penalty that I deserve to pay forever and ever and ever, but he did. He did. Don't ask me how. How it's true, God and man, 
perfect union, two natures, one person suffers on the cross and pays the penalty. It's beyond me, but that's what he did. Now, have you trusted that substitute? Because he's the only one that can save, save sinners. If you've never trusted in Christ for your justification, you need to trust him. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Being sorry for your sins will never save you. Should one be sorry for his sins? Yes. But that won't save you. It won't justify you. Reforming your life will not save you. Should you reform your life? Undoubtedly. Will that save you? No. Church membership will not save you. If you're a believer in Christ, you should be a member of a church, but it won't save you. Human, a human intermediary cannot save you. Only Christ who shed his blood for sinners can save you from your sins. And so the problem is bringing you, bringing myself by nature, bringing people down to the price. You know how you haggle over prices? Well, that's the problem here, bringing people down to the price, because the price is nothing. And when it comes to justification, we want to boast in ourselves and in our works and our achievements, our accomplishments, and by nature, nobody wants to say, I contribute nothing. But that's the price. Nothing. Jesus paid it all. I pay nothing. No work of your own whatsoever contributes to your acceptance with God. Should we try as believers to serve God and love Him and love His law? Of course. Does that contribute to my acceptance? Not a bit. Nothing that I do contributes to my acceptance with God. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Nothing that you do will contribute to your justification, to your acceptance with God. Not one thing. So do not insult God by attempting to add to the payment of the cross. You are not saved by the quality of your contrition either, believer, but only by the quality of the Savior's blood. The Belgic Confession says this, I've always thought it was quite beautiful, our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Is your conscience vexed because you know you're a sinner or because specific sins are overwhelming your heart or your mind? There's only one answer, the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. So you keep coming back to the gospel, back to the gospel. You never mature beyond the cross. Paul brings these Galatians back to the gospels, to the gospel. And then what? I've trusted in Christ. Then what? Well, verse 14 of chapter 6. God forbid that I should both save in the death of Jesus Christ, my Lord, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You are called to be a boaster, every one of you. You are to boast exclusively in the cross of Jesus. And Paul is calling us away from every form of self-righteousness when he says boast in the cross. Well, can I boast in something I've done before God? Not a thing. Well, something I did for Him? No. 
nothing but the cross, nothing but the cross, nothing but the cross. And if any man might have something about which to boast, it was Paul. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 and remind yourselves of what Paul says about his own life. In Philippians 3, we'll just pick it up at verse 3. Paul says in Philippians 3, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But then he says, now look back at my life, what it used to be. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul says, these boasters, they want to boast, I can boast more. But that's only in the flesh. I have nothing about which to boast. I have only one righteousness, and that is the righteousness of Christ that has come to me by faith. Now he lives on the theme of the cross. He wants you to live on the theme of the cross. What you boast in, listen, what you boast in, in your heart, what you boast in, is that upon which you are relying for your salvation. What you boast in is what you trust in. Boast means to glory in, to exult in. But the chief characteristic of the new people of God, says Joachim Jeremias, the chief characteristic of the new people of God gathered together by Jesus is their awareness of the boundlessness of God's grace. So boasting is your new way of living, not boasting in yourself, boasting in the cross. And so he says, be far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And by world here, Paul means everything outside of Jesus Christ in which I once had put my trust. I'm crucified to those things. And those things are crucified to me. They're put to death. And why in our hymn books have we cut out the best line of when I survey the wondrous cross? His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe and all the globe is dead to me. Those things that I once boasted in, they're nothing. They're dead to me. And there's only Jesus. There's only the cross in which I now boast. So are you redeemed from the curse of the law? Are you accepted through Jesus' blood? Then boast. Let's get out there and boast. This is the one time in life in which you can boast and rightly do so. Boast in the cross. Stephen Neal, having been a missionary in India, made the statement that has always gripped me. 
In the Hindu system, and what he says about Hinduism can be applied to many things. In the Hindu system, the ineluctable order of the world says, you sin, you pay. In the Christian mystery of grace, God says, you sin, I pay. Is it just sinking in? God says, you sin, I pay. So I think the cross is something in which to boast. Don't you? Don't you have an overwhelming reason to glory only in the cross? Boast in the cross where God's attributes are most clearly seen. Boast in the cross where God's justice shows itself most terrible. Boast in the cross where Jesus pays the debt that we owed for an eternity to come. Boast in the cross where God's wrath is satisfied once for all. Boast in the cross where God's infinite love shines brightest. Boast in the cross where God's salvation is manifest. Boast in the cross where my redemption is accomplished. Boast in the cross where my acceptance with God is achieved. Boast in the cross where my justification is pronounced. Boast in the cross in which is found all of my righteousness. Boast in the cross where my Savior purchased my soul. Boast in the cross where Jesus reconciled me to God. Boast in the cross where I find my only hope in life and in death. Boast in the cross. Boast in the cross. Boast in the cross. And it is my greatest desire that everyone under my charge, no matter how young or how old, will boast only in the cross. And that before you die, some of you who have not trusted in Christ will boast only in the cross. And on the day of judgment, when you stand before the all-seeing eye of the holy God, and there he is, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he brings the inflexibility of his law against those who have not believed, that on that day you will cry out with joy, Lord Jesus, I boast in your cross. I boast only in your cross. I have nothing of which to boast but your cross. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Do you know those lines? My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. And God's people said, Amen.